Welcome to 20th Century Geek. So, I see you received the ticket I sent you. I'm glad. I did so want you to be here, you see. It doesn't matter if you catch me and send me back to the asylum. Gordon's been driven mad. I've proved my point. I've demonstrated there's no difference between me and everyone else. All it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive lunacy. That's how far the world is from where I am. Just one bad day. You had a bad day once. Am I right? I know I am. Now you can tell. You had a bad day and everything changed. Why else would you dress up like a flying rat? You had a bad day, and it drove you as crazy as everybody else. Only you won't admit it. You have to keep pretending that life makes sense. That there's some point to all this struggling. God, you make me want to puke. I mean, what is it with you? What made you what you are? Girlfriend killed by the mob, baby? Brother? carved up by some mugger. Something like that, I bet. Something like that. Something like that happened to me, you know. I... I'm not exactly sure what it was. Sometimes I remember it one way and sometimes another. If I'm going to have a past, I prefer to have multiple choice. <laughs> But my point is, <clears throat> my point is, I went crazy. When I saw what a black, awful joke the world was, I went crazy as a coot. I admit it. Why can't you? I mean, you're not unintelligent. You must see the reality of the situation. Do you know how many times we've come close to World War Three over a flock of geese on a computer screen? Do you know what triggered the last World War? An argument over how many telegraph poles Germany owed its war debt creditors. Telegraph poles! It's all a joke. Everything everybody ever valued or struggled for is all a monstrous, demented gag. So why can't you see the funny side? Why aren't you laughing? Welcome to 20th Century Geek. I'm Scott Weatherly, your usual host. And I'm hoping that you can tell from the intro we just did that uh, we're going to be covering the killing joke. Today. It's 30 years old this month and still stands out as one of the best graphic novels ever written. Possibly the best Joker story ever written as well. But we won't get into that now. 
because I spoke to a, a man recently who's definitely in the know, Julian Darius, the man who created Sikwat, and in fact wrote the book on The Killing Joke. Without any further ado, I'm going to pass you straight over to myself and our interview with Julian Darius. Let's start with um, some introductions so that I'll say we can get the, you know, the listeners knowing who you are and, uh, and, uh, and why you want to talk about this book. So if you want to introduce yourself. Well, my name is uh, Julian Darius. I am the founder of uh, Sequoia Organization, which has existed for um, about 22 years to promote comics as a legitimate form of art. And we've done a lot of books and movies, including a book I wrote on Batman Began. I mean, I'm, uh, well, we did that too, but on <laughs> Batman uh, Killing a Joke. And now I'm making comics with Martian Lit. Yes, I've I've uh, I saw your Kickstarter, so you can definitely promote that if you want to throw some uh, information yeah. out there so people can find it. Yeah, sure. If you go to Kickstarter and search for the synthetics, it's synthetics number one, big robot battle on Mars. So thank you. Excellent. No, no, just, it's it's all good. I've had a look at it. I've I've, uh, I've put some money into it, so hopefully it'll get its targets. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> so. Sequat to begin with, I sort of I came across Sequat sort of just when I was rambling and ambling around the internet, and uh, I came across Greg Carpenter's book, uh, The British Invasion, which sort of got me onto it. And since sort of come across it, I bought quite a few of your books now. I've got several on Grant Morrison and other bits and pieces. Uh, I do like the take, you know, that more analytical sort of academic take. It's definitely opened my eyes to reading books in a different way. So, from that point of view, why did you start Sequat? Well, as an undergraduate. And at the time, you know, this was the 90s, and my professors, who I, I respected a lot, did not really see comics as literary. And I would, and I, I would tell them, yeah, this, this stands on par uh, with literary stuff and, and anything in the canon, and, you know, you're discriminating against this form of art. And I had, I had one professor who I was very good friends with say, well, if you if you want to make that argument, you need to stop calling it comics, you know, because that mm. goes back to funny comic strip. And I thought, well, you know, we're never going to win with some people. So I just kind of started assembling resources for studying different comics and articles that I was writing just for the fun of it, not for any class. Then I found people, you know, I knew wanted to work for it and wanted to, to write for it as a, as a website. This is, you know, pretty early. Yeah. In, you know, the web. And, you know, so to me, the, and then they, they worked for it and, you know, we just kind of expanded from there and did our first book in 2005 and our first movie not that long after. You know, so to me, the, it was a reaction to seeing that there was a hole that needed to be filled, that there wasn't that respect and we needed to have it. No, good. Um, yeah, um, and I'm glad it's there. So, you know, so having that background then, and that that was your sort of what you were setting up then. When did you first come across the Killing Joke? Oh well, I mean, before any of that, <laughs> it, it must have been maybe a year after it came out or something. You know, all that all that stuff from the eighties, and you know, I guess Killing Joke is eighty nine, and I think all that stuff I read a little late because I was so young. Yeah. And I kind of had the impression that, like, Dark Knight had been around five, ten years, and really I was reading it, like, as soon as the trade came out. But So I didn't have much of an idea of 
at the time of like when it had actually come out. I would have been reading comics pretty regularly and seriously when it came out, but I'm sure I just picked it up, you know, in some good comic store and had no idea really how old it was. Yeah. It's one of those things, like you say, it's sort of the co- the cover itself is very striking, you know, the, the joke with the camera. So from the offset, you sort of brought in, you, you know, you're dragged into it, not knowing. I think I had a very similar thing. I knew it was, I started reading comics in the 90s. And uh, it's one of those I, I, I'd heard people talking about. I'd seen it on things. And, you know, it's one of those, if you read comics, you should have read this. Um, and I remember picking it up without any real preconceived notions of what was inside, but being very struck by the cover straight off. So it's, it's uh, yeah, you bought it. I was bought into it from the offset, I think. Right. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, I mean, obviously that cover's very striking. And I think that as soon as you pick it up, if you, I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, both of us got it in mm. the prestige format. And that's really the way, I mean, you know, I'm glad that it's included in, like, the, the DC work of Alan Moore, but it's so obviously intended to be read in that prestige format as a single-issue book, you know, with the um, embossed cover and just to, to have that thickness, that heft to it. Yeah. I mean, it would work fine as, you know, like in the, in the hardcover edition works fine too, but just to sort of open it and see it as art object. It is, it's almost, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story because the more research you did about it, it's that there's some, it's not clear, you know, whether Alan Moore meant this to be something special or if he just saw it as filler or whatever, but Brian Boland especially, you know, he, he, he spent that long doing it, that it was definitely something special for him. Yeah, and, and Moore has kind of disowned it in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I always take everything he disowns with a pinch of salt, though, because he disowns everything that's in mainstream comics, so I think... <laughs> well, that is very true, and, and and of course, it's not really relevant anyway, because, you know, lots of authors have disparaged their own work or disowned, or, or even lied about their own work. Mm. Uh, and if it's, if it's great and it affects lots of people, you know... That's, that's great. It doesn't take anything away from what they did. But you're, I, mean, I like to hear you say that because there are people who will just say, oh, the author's, the author's intent or the author's voice is all that matters. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that, but when you call what you say, you refer to this as an art piece, and I think the art is, is so critical to this, uh, both in the original Prestige and, I'd say, in the, you know, the reprinted, the, the, the deluxe edition. Um, everything, you know, Brian Boland's pencil work in this is so, so good. The thing is, I, I knew Brian Boland way, way before this, being a child of Britain, I sort of know 2000 AD. Um, and so I know Brian Boland's work from that, doing Judge Dredd and uh, Rogue Trooper and things like that. So to see him, this is, you know, that's him doing a weekly comic. This is him doing an exquisite piece of work. Uh, the colouring, I think, you know, does matter. I mean, what, what do you think about the two different formats? Like, which has the bigger impact for you? The, the original formatting with the slightly psychedelic colouring or the actual, the redone for uh, colouring? Yeah, I, I think the redone colouring is better. It, I, I think it's just, it, it's kind of objectively better. Like, like, there are places where, you know, Higgins' original colours are, uh, you know, a bit off or where you can't even see some detail. But I certainly, I think it suffers from some of the problems that plague, like recoloring the Incal a few uh, few years back, mm. where you know you get a little 
you know, you look at it and, and, and people are inevitably going to think, well, it doesn't have the same sort of flat psychedelic effect. And there are times where I feel that, but I still, I still look at the new stuff and think it, it's better. I, I can see more. And, and the gradients are not overly applied. Which I think was kind of the case with the Incal. It's not just updated and the gradients are crazy and you feel like it's a totally different book. I don't feel that way. Do you? No, not at all. I, I, I definitely think it benefits from it. I mean, it's, it, I'd, I'd go so far as to say it's, it's actually an easier read. You know, it's a clearer read, like you say, with, with the recoloring. And even some of the more iconic panels, I think, benefit from the recoloring. Even, you know, the, the difference between, different, say, but the present day story and the flashbacks, you know, I, I quite like the sort of the red motif that goes throughout the flashbacks and all that kind of thing. I think it, it, it looks neater. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I wanted to ask about, uh, about Bolland. Isn't it sad that he, this was his last, you know, I agree with everything you're saying. This was his last major interior work that he he did those weekly that weekly work for 2000 AD and a million other places and was obviously a master draftsman mm. and then he he does this take your time and you know embrace the a prestige you know graphic novel kind of uh, format and then it's just well that took that took too much time i'm going to stick to covers I, I, I don't mean to be unfair to him there. In fact, I think he had so much promise. I mean, it's great every time I'm going back and reading 2000 AD and I hit the, yeah. the ball and chapter, you know, like, yes! <laughs> but I've always been sad that, you know, he didn't do another or keep in that same vein. No, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's artists of this era, uh, late 80s, early 90s, when, the, you know, when you had the, the graphic novel was sort of taken off. And then I think of others that... More Alan Moore did, or Neil Gaiman, and I think of like Dave McKean, you know, and, and what he did with things, and think, oh, there is there was a missed opportunity there that if he'd have if he'd have partnered with somebody else of that period and done you know, like just another just another piece of work, I think it would have been brilliant. Or even him doing something like when Vertigo took off, so you know, if he'd have done some part of uh, Constantine or contributed to uh, Sandman or something, I think it'd have been brilliant. Yeah, it is a real shame. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I feel that way too. How do you think it stands up? Because it comes in that period of time. So this came out in 88, where you'd had uh, Dark Knight, you know, the Return of the Dark Knight, you'd had Watchmen, you know, you got that, that rise of the adult comic, you know, they, they said the more adult comics and stuff. I, I've seen different people commenting on this being both a continuation of that, but also a almost like a response to it. So the violence and the sort of insanity in this almost being a response to that, you know, maturation of comics. Yeah, I'm interested in, in what the argument would be that it's a response. I, I, I think that I think that Moore was kind of continuing in that vein. I mean, Moore did not, you know, Moore did not seem to have been... Well, I mean, he wrote the introduction to, to Dark Knight. I mean, mm. and and he he did not seem to have been you know, like committed to just making violent superhero stories. But, you know, the reality is that, like you said, you kind of have to take what he says with a little grain of salt, you know, that he was like, oh, I always plan to, to, to write after Watchmen something, you know, like a funny animal comic. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating as a claim that, but sometimes you get that kind of thing and you say, well, yeah, you that is not going to happen. That was <laughs> not going to happen. The market at that time expected these kinds of stories and it is a smarter sort of more literary story 
it's a more artistic story than Dark Knight, just in terms of its mm. construction and the, the panel layout and, and all of this. But I don't know that it's not in that vein. I, I'm wondering what the argument would be that it's. I think I saw I saw an article that that, that, that it it used the basis of saying that basically all the violence is what the Joker's you know is going against. It's the insanity of it all. Like, you know, you're just going to go crazy with the you know with the increasing levels of violence. And was it you know was it a comment on that's the only pursuit now is that these comics are going to get more violent and more aggressive and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, and to have the Joker come on that would probably be is a, is an interesting statement to make, I suppose. Yeah, that's sort of this is I, I see it now. That sort of this is is this our last chance to not kill each other? Is this mm. our last chance to not sort of escalate? But yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I think that. But the story is so is so violent to me. It's so. Uh, I mean, Alan Moore can say that he he dashed it off, and you know, by the time it came out, he didn't care about it, and he didn't intend it to be a major story. But you know, I feel as if you know, certainly when he was writing it, he cared about it. Yeah. He might not have been aware that it was going to be in the prestige format or, or get all of this acclaim, because frankly, he wasn't Alan Moore yet in 1987. Mm. He, you know, he didn't have that level of of clout. But I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how well. The thing that the thing that haunts me about how well it holds up is the the treatment of women. Yes, I agree. I mean, it's it's, it's odd that it's and it's no comment on on even on more because he he's been cited in from from his eighties work as a bit of a misogynist. You know, I've heard it said. Um, you know, you get the treatment of Barbara Gordon in this. You get the treatment of Silk Spec, the first Silk Spectre in Watchmen. That that sort of thing, but. Really, when you look at his other works, there's a characters like you know Promethea and we did Lost Girls as well. But you know he he definitely has I want to say feminist but equal values. It just so happens I think this came out in an era when this was probably shocking in you know in a different way. But what are your thoughts on it really? From a the, the especially obviously the treatment of Barbara Gordon. Yeah, well, I mean it's troubled and, and, and my thoughts are troubled about it because when it came out, obviously that wasn't the focus. And I think that, you know, in its context, not that, not that nobody was raising these, these questions or these concerns, but you know, when, when I had that kind of conversation closer to those days, that conversation tended to be one that was very understanding of like, well, you know, this is a Batman and Joker story. And, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to see Barbara in a hospital, but I get it. I'm a fan of her character. I don't like seeing that, but I acknowledge the story. I mean, it would be this kind of, well, it's a Batman and Joker story. And look, DC did not care about Barbara Gordon. DC was only too happy to have her shot and paralyzed. And obviously you're going to have some fans. I mean, so that suggests to me there, there weren't a lot of fans of the character at the time that DC was concerned about alienating. So I think that in its place, I don't want to say you can never bring up something from a uh, from a later period and judge an early work because I don't totally believe that's true. Mm. But I think at its time, in its context, it was a mature Batman story that's centrally about Batman and the Joker. And, you know, Alan Moore wanted a little more oomph, a little more uh, way of, of grinding in that, you know, twisting that knife into uh, Gordon, and that's the function that Barbara's torture serves. I think the question is as well, let's say, take it in context. I mean, this eventually, well, no, not even eventually, was quite quickly taken into continuity. And, mm-hmm. you know, Barbara becomes Oracle and all that kind of thing. But 
from possibly the original intention is to be like an Elseworld story, you know, out of continuity. If you were to take this cold, then it almost like you know you do, she's got there's no there's no mention of her being Batgirl in this book at all. So if you were to come in this as an early reader, then you know does it have less impact because it's just Gordon's daughter? You know, is she just is it supposed to be? I mean, I've always taken it as I think maybe like naivety, but it's almost like Joker doesn't know that she's Batgirl. Like he doesn't care. Like none of that to him is important. And it's to show that the randomness of all this is just whoever opens the door is going to get shot. That could have been Gordon. It could have been her. It could have been anybody. It's just the randomness of it. But I suppose it's it's just how it's been. It's it's the yeah. discussion is like I say the context of it as well. Yeah, I, and I, I like what you're saying that you know there's no reason to think that he knows that she's Batgirl, and and that's both highlights that randomness, but it, it's also you know, potentially insulting, like, you wouldn't have a stranger... Bruce Wayne is not going to go out because of a Joe Chill shooting him in an alley, not yeah. knowing he's Batman. So, I, I I don't know. I mean, I think the older I get, the more I'm disturbed by it. I think the older I get, the more I feel like... I still react against the idea that it's a... You know, I don't like when an entire work is dismissed as trash, which mm. you sometimes see... Or it's it's the word misogynist or sexist is used in is leveraged in a kind of way to suggest you're bad to read this or like this this is or this is just garbage and and you know because the reality is ninety nine percent of all art that's ever been made is sexist or racist or classist or something in its era yeah but I I do the old you know having with the, all of those caveats I mean the older I get the more I feel like. Why is there not a Barbara hospital scene? <laughs> you know, like why is she just dropped out of the narrative? Her function is to be a prop for the men. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to torture your daughter to anger you and make Batman come after me. And and I think when I first read it, I did not see implied rape at all. I mean, I, you know, I guess I was an innocent, innocent little boy. Yeah. But um, you know, but. Taking photos of her naked is definitely there. I mean, even a, even if you don't focus on the implied rape, it's it's this is a horrible assault. And and I and I guess what bothers me the most is that she's not given interior space. You yeah. see her in pain, but the point is to generate imagery, almost like porn, you know, mm. to upset. And then she's just dismissed. She's disposable to the plot. And I think that element more just takes that a little too far. And the older I get, the more I... That's the thing that disturbs me about the book. Uh, no, I agree. I think there are certain elements of it. I mean, like you say, the photographs. It's, it's I, I to and fro on the, the, the panel where Gordon's being shown the photographs of his, of his daughter and, you know, she's clearly been stripped naked and it's like the implied rape and that. But then that that, that sort of implies almost the sexualization of the Joker, which I've always taken to be asexual. Like, you know, that it, it's not an issue to him. It's not a thing. But would he go there? The thing I find bizarre is at the end of it, when Batman turns up to save Gordon, takes him out of the cage, at no point does he actually reassure Gordon that she's fine. Yeah, you're right. You know, he, he, or, it, yeah, he doesn't say your daughter's fine or, you know, she's been taken to hospital or anything. Like, it's, it's not even part of the... All he says is, Bob, uh, he shot Barbara, showed me the photographs, and then Batman runs off. <laughs> 
And I do find that that's really callous, especially, like you say, when the relationship between Batman and Batgirl. So it's... it's yeah. Well, and also, you, you know, you're talking to a, a father, and I and, and I get that he is a tough cop, and, you know, it's Gordon, you know, yeah. but still, isn't he going to be more concerned about his, his father than getting the bad guy, and I mean, about his daughter, and then getting the bad guy in that moment, and exactly what tactics are used, you know? Well, exactly, but also, coming from, a, let's be honest, Batman Bruce Wayne is nothing more than a mourning, so he's a grieving son. So to be essentially a grieving child, to not reassure a, a, a parent of another child's well-being seems off, really, and always has done to me. I agree. Um, I, I, and I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I, and I think that I agree with you that that's, that's always feels wrong, off. And I think that I, I don't know that I would have not just ignored it, you know, upon first reading it, but, it, but I think that as time goes on, these, these flaws become more apparent mm. and the sort of dazzle of just what Warren and Ballin did fades and we're more aware of what it looks like and what the structure looks like and, and where the story's going. These flaws kind of come out and I, I think that's a natural process. Yeah. Oh, it is. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like you say, these... You, you you admire it for what it is, but then like, with with anything, you know, you, you as you as you read it more and digest it more, you're able to find out the the cracks appear in, in everything. And that's just just the way it is. The thing that I sort of I circle around, I'd be, I'd be interested to get your opinion on really, is the nature of the book itself being cyclical. Yeah. So you get, as you said, you know, as you mentioned, the first panel and the last panel are exactly the same, suggesting that it's you know goes round and round. And the thing that sort of, like, especially in this reading, when I've read it a couple of times since Christmas, really, was there's no trigger for this event. So, you know, the, the, both Batman and uh, the Joker are on a path. Like, something has triggered them to be in a place where the Joker wants to, just wants to prove that one bad day can turn you into him, you know, can turn you crazy. And Batman is on a path of having, of almost looking to help redeem. He's using the Joker, I think, as an example, but to redeem some of his other villains. And the question I came away with more and more was, why? What, what's, what, what event or what has happened for Batman to be on that path? And what event has triggered the Joker's frustration in order to put this, you know, really intricate plan in place just to, just to prove a point? Like, what has triggered that? I don't understand where they're coming from. So there's like, almost like a lack of motivation on both parts. I'm more troubled by that lack of motivation on the Joker's part. And I, you're absolutely right. You know, I remember thinking when every time Batman summoned to, I read Batman summoned to Arkham, you know, and I think, how did he get this guy in there with makeup on? How long ago did this happen? Why did he choose now to escape? You know, that the point about the intricate plan, I mean, it reminds me of, uh, of the movie The Dark Knight, which is justifiably praised i mean it's uh, i think it's you know the pinnacle of uh, superhero movies mm. but that suffers from the same problem of uh you know the joker is a totally changes his motivation over the course of that film and is constantly saying i'm an anarchist while actually putting together unbelievably elaborate plans yeah. that have key points that don't really that require things that he could not predict so, I mean, yeah, you're, you're completely right. There's no inciting incident. And I think that 
maybe that that goes to the cyclical nature of the story, mm. but this is this is a point at which it kind of like it kind of falls down. You know, not only is there no inciting incident, but what do you make of that final joke and where is this going to go? I, I think that for me, it kind of reads like an interesting literary experiment, and it reads like a prelude for Dark Knight Returns, or, or indeed the death of Jason Todd, which is which came out right after, or and which is uh, sort of intended as a bridge between Killing Joke and Dark Knight Returns. No, but, I, I agree. I mean, that's I, the, the thing I say. What you say is, it feels like the middle, the middle chapter of a trilogy. Yes. You're absolutely, that's brilliant. That's completely correct. Who is this Barbara? Not even established backgrounds, not even true, you know. Like, And why is why are they both the Batman and the Joker set on this? Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like it's hinting toward another one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's dead on. He just wrote Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want my, uh, I want my Batman Ewoks. Yeah, that, yeah, that, you know, well... You know, Empire's a good one. We'll just write that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> damn if it's not good, but yeah, you're, you are. I think that's that's a brilliant way of putting it. Well, let's get to that the end then, really, because I think you know we get we get to the the interpretation of the end, and this became a bit of a thing probably in the last sort of five. I don't know when it was about five years when I didn't know I'd never I'd never even thought of this interpretation of this book until Grant Morrison appeared on Kevin Smith's uh, Fat Man on Batman. And basically said, well, of course, this is the, the the last Joker story. Like Batman kills the Joker. That's the that's the that's the killing joke. And I remember hearing it and straight away sort of thinking, well, I'm, I'm happy for you to read it that way, but that's totally like not how I've ever read this. But it seems to be almost like the the majority now take it that way. Well, I don't. I don't know. I I have no idea what the majority do. I mean, I feel so completely alienated from my own American culture. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel completely alienated from comics reading culture today. I have I have no idea what the majority do on anything. But uh, yeah, I mean that was the one time after the Fat Man on Batman. That was the one time that I have ever been able to get publicity for something I've written based on just the timing. Because I was able to say I talked about this theory in my book, which was published like a couple of years ago. <laughs> And uh, so, I, so I got Kevin. Kevin Smith talked about me and talked about uh, my book. I was, you oh, know, cool. yeah. I got a little fanboy. Uh, uh, you know, the guy who did Clerks talked about. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's not a definitive reading. I mean, to me, I I thought of it because, you know, in my reading of it, what I propose in the book is that there is this odd page with the Joker's needle in his palm. Yeah. And, you know, it's so bizarre. And, and and really, the easiest answer to that is, well, ball and screwed up, you know, mm. and Alan Wolf didn't care enough to come back to it. But, you know, the Joker, uh, Batman's looking at his hand very strangely right after this. Like, he's knocked the, the needle out of uh, Joker's hand. He, he falls over and he, there's... He's looking at his hand in this odd way. Mm. And it's just now. In theory, I, I guess that there's some notes or something from Bolland where Bolland says, "Oh, uh, he's looking at his." It's the most. It's the most inconsequential thing. It's like he's looking at his hand grip in his palm or something. Yeah. So the way you know, which 
is not even drawn in any other scene, you know, as something that might slide or be worth looking at. It just seems such a uh, unsatisfactory uh, answer to me. You know, the reality is, and I think producing comics now, I see this, is that you write a script, an artist hands you back art. Mm. Um, and that art stresses things that were not necessarily important to you mm-hmm. and does not stress as much the moment or the emotion that was at the heart of the story for you. Now, you can intervene and then, you know, give notes, but at the end of the day, what you get back is based on the blueprint that you wrote. Yeah. Now, at that point, you can go in and you can and you can change dialogue and you can tweak whatever you want, and, and I think not enough writers do that. But at the end of the day, your original intent doesn't really matter, and what you have is what's on the page, and what's on the page is weird there, and what's on the page has made... It made me as a kid wonder what is going on on that final page. Mm. The way Batman and Joker are sort of like uh, in silhouette and Bond is so precise in his art and suddenly they're just kind of like wavy, like, you know, and they're buddy buddies. And yeah. and it's weird and, you know, you cut to the ground and why does Batman have this expression of like mania on his face? It all just struck me as weird and I always felt like there's something more there that's being conceived, concealed from the reader. So that was my reaction in, like, 1990. Yeah. It's you, don't, you don't have that reaction. No, no, but that is, it's, um, what you said to begin with is, is, so, is so right. Like, you know, you say it starts with a script and the art is produced and they go together and, you know, they create, let's say, a page. Now, that page, once it's in the public eye or the public domain, can be interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways because of that person, whoever's reading it brings a certain level of background and legacy with them. I mean, for, for me, so when I read because this is, uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm intrigued to see, like, say, to your idea, because when I read the two panels I think about, you know, uh, Batman gets hit, hit around the head with the plank, he's adjusting his cowl, and I've always taken the the top half of the sort of, the page where he's adjusting his, his, uh, his cowl, and, you know, like you say, he's got his hand in a funny position. The way I always interpret it is it's, they can't depict speed in because it's obviously static art, but those panels are supposed to be like really quick. And I've always taken it. The moment he catches the Joker's hand from that first panel of the top of that page to that panel, it's literally like, you know, a split second. And it's showing that that one arm just moves in that instant and he's able to catch it. And it was trying, like, it feels like he was trying to show speed of reflex. And that's why the other, the other hand hasn't moved much, at the, you know, at that point. But it does look weird. It's almost it's a, it's it's. I mean, you're right about you're right about the the gutter, right? You know, mm. like how can you control time? It, it's weird. Like you control time as a comics creator through panel layout, but really the the reader controls how they read this and and how much time has actually passed there isn't clear. But thinking of it in terms of a movie, I mean, you still you shot this shot from that perspective. Yeah. That might, and, and if the point is reaction, how fast is reaction? Why is he staring at his hand? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's not clear. And how much time, even if it is a split second, you can have a split second shot in the movie, you know, the eyes just before somebody falls or something that really is only two seconds, but is strange and memorable and intended to be memorable. So 
don't necessarily disagree with you. I mean, it's definitely in the middle of a fight, but but it, it just looks strange. And and yes, he's adjusting his cowl, but is Batman's suit really so loose on him? Like yeah. it's like it's like, like pajamas this guy just can <laughs> every time he falls. That has been the biggest the biggest the one thing that's always bothered me, the really even from the very, very first interpretation, is that the Joker can pull his cowl down by just hooking the eyes. And I've I've always thought that like this isn't Adam West Batman. This isn't supposed to be that, like you know that the cowl shouldn't be that daft. But yeah, it's it's a yeah, really I, interesting set of pages. The, the thing I think about the cowl is is if it, you're right, it is a bit Adam West. It is a bit silly, um, but but you know there was also remember in Dark Knight Returns, there's that series of captions in which Frank Miller is trying to explain why Batman would have a bat symbol on his chest. Mm. You know, because normally if you're shooting at somebody to take somebody down, you're going to aim at the center of their body mass. Thank you for putting a target on the center of your body mass. Yeah. And Miller says, well, that's because that's the most reinforced armored section. Mm. And, and this is really a, a, you know, to my mind, a kind of classic revisionist attempt to make, superheroes more realistic attempt to make their tropes make sense within a realistic world which obviously has fallen out of fashion but which really is inseparable from the whole you know 80s art superhero movement and so i think i think there might be a little bit of kind of egg on the face a little bit of kind of poking fun at batman and at the silliness of the suits of the the symbol you know how this isn't practical going on there but yeah it's still it is a little uh at least get a foam rubber suit like michael keaton you know yeah so yeah because you can't move his head but at least it looks good sort of thing yeah and i think there's ambiguity on that final page too mm. i mean you know you can see it as just joker and the batman have a lot more in common than you think and that Batman thinks. And I think that is something that clearly Alan Moore intended and clearly stuck with me and has stuck with me that really Batman is also a guy who dresses up and does crazy things. Yeah. Um, and it's violent. You know, they really are two peas in a pod. And, and, there, and maybe this is just the weird moment where they acknowledge that. But I mean, if Batman really does want to save him, he tells a very sad joke in a moment of sobriety. And that joke is about how there's no changing. We're going to kill each other. I'm crazy. If you interpret it in that mm. way, this is going to keep going. And you know, this is not going to keep going forever because even though it looks cyclical, Batman, you know, has said, you know, we're going to kill one of us is going to kill the other one. And Batman's just like, ah, yeah, you're right. You know, we are gonna kill each other. Let's have a let's have a let's have a beer. It's that's very that's a very odd interpretation too, and yet that is kind of the standard interpretation, or at least to me, it was my standard interpretation. So the idea that Batman's acting out of character and there's a reason for it, and maybe he, you know, has been nicked by this uh, poison thing, or in, in Grant Morrison's earlier reading, Grant said, you know, that he's killing the Joker. Um, Actually, some friends of mine who worked on the, the Morrison documentary said they they took my theory about the needle to mm. Grant. And Grant said, oh, I love that. That's brilliant. <laughs> you know, I agree with that. You know, um, but what I love about what I love about what Grant's doing there is like I, 
Grant doesn't believe in a definitive interpretation. Mm. So, if, you know, uh, when when we were doing, um, when Tim Callahan was doing Grant Morris in the early years, he had a whole section on how the Doom Patrol is basically Alice in Wonderland. And it's the Scarecrow and, you know, making the Tin Man, you know, as Cliff Steele and making this analogy. And when he interviewed Grant about it, Grant said, you know, I've never thought about that, but you are absolutely right. That's a great interpretation. And so Grant is one of those um, those writers who doesn't think that they own every intellectual possibility or permutation of their work. Yes. So, so for Grant, the idea that we're still arguing about Killing Joke and we're still arguing about um, what even happens in it and coming up with cool theories about it is mm. amazing and awesome and how that book lives. And... You can disagree with it. I don't think that he ever thinks that he is delivering the definitive account of here's what is happening in Killing Joke, Batman Kills Joke. No, and I think that's that's why I love this. That's the reason, you know, we have nitpicked on it and all that sort of thing, but that's one of the reasons I love this book is because almost depending on what mood I'm in, is it will depend on the interpretation of how I take certain parts of this book. And that last page in particular... Like you say, you know, when I, when I heard Grant Morrison's interpretation of it being the final Joker story, I could see that. I was like, oh, okay, I get it. But I'm not, it's not how I've read it. And then, you know, reading your uh, reading your book, and I was like, that, you know, the Batman Batman has done this and he's been infected with it. I can see, I can, I can see it now. It's sort of like, but they both work. Depend on, you know, let's like say how I'm coming to the book. Recently, um, it, I, I read it early last year. And work was doing my head in. I was really getting stressed at work. and But there was people that was like a level of camaraderie that, I'd, I'll be honest with you, I may not have actually liked, but because you were in the trenches with them, you sort of worked with them and everything, you, you know, you'd, you'd end up having a laugh with them. And I remember reading this at one point and seeing it almost as that inappropriate laugh that you have when you're being told off. You know, that, that heightened yeah. emo- that heightened emotion. You've been through such a stressful situation, and then someone's like, you know, trying to keep it serious, and then all of a sudden, something just makes you laugh, and you can't stop yourself because it's really inappropriate. And then you're laughing at how inappropriate it was. And I was like, is, is Batman having an awkward moment? Is it? Is it? Is that what it is? I, I love that. I love hearing you say that because you know, I mean, that really underlines the character story and, and how. It's not just a, an art object, but also Batman wants to save the Joker. I mean, the Joker, I mean, I sometimes come at it from a place of, because uh, I'm a manic depressive, so I sometimes come at it from a place of uh, addiction and, and psychological disease of that moment of clarity of the Joker where he's considering the, the offer, but, you know, there there is this, way in which when when uh, I mean just using my statements and speaking for myself when when I am struggling with my own depression and, and my own dark night of the soul I know there's a better version of me a healthier version of me if I would take certain steps um, you know if I would go out if I would slug this off and yet what it is that I'm feeling and who I am at the time prohibits that mm. and there can be these odd moments where, you know, I mean, it's like, um, you know, if you've ever talked to an alcoholic who, who says, this is killing me, 
but I don't know that I can change this. Yeah. I want to, I know that I should, but I'm probably just going to die from this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and think like, what are you saying? This is horrible. Um, and yet I think there are times that, that we all say this when we, uh, you know, it certainly speaks to me. So, I mean, I, I love what you're saying and, and, and I have never kind of focused on that angle or, or seen that in quite that same crystal way. And the fact that we all can come at it from our own experiences and find these little things that, that still resonate with us and still take on some additional meaning is amazing and phenomenal and beautiful. And that's why I think this book's so important. I mean, that's why, Alan, you know, a lot of it, you hear a lot said about Alan Moore that, you know, you can do that. And most of it, Grant Morrison's work, like, you know, you can reinterpret it again and again. And so I do get, you know, frustrated with people when I talk to them and they've got like a definitive opinion of, no, 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 this is this is how it is. And I'm always like, well, it's it's not. Like, you know, um, I've got a, 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 I'm doing a big Superman series of episodes later in the year. And, you know, I, I come, I've come across this whole thing of like, you know, what is Superman? Like, you know, describing him as like the Ubermensch and, uh, you know, Zeus and the, the Sun God and all these other interpretations. And I was like, oh, yeah, but the fact you can say all those different things about this one person that actually was just created as an escapist character by two down on their look Jewish immigrant sons of immigrants is, is incredible that it's come to that. And I think it's the same as, as Batman, really. Like, you know, everyone, The Dark Knight Returns had painted him as this sort of like character driven by a, an uncontrollable rage that just burned away at him and that sort of thing. And I think that's a real, almost like a sad interpretation. And I think this actually, in my but the way I see it, is almost like a lighter side that, yeah, he does have that grim and gritty side, but he wants to be a source of hope. He wants to prove that what he's doing is actually for the betterment of people rather than, you know, Gotham and all this big concept. He actually wants to help individuals. And I think that's, that Batman is a person that wants to help. He's actually quite a, almost an inspiring story, and I can take that from this book. I, I, I like that interpretation. I, I like that interpretation better than where I've gone with Batman. You know, I think that some of where, where, what I like about just he's the self-made man who uh, wants to make Gotham better and, and really help people, obviously in the wake of, you know, our politics and income disparity, it's really easy for me to, you know, my trigger with Batman now is anything that makes me feel like he's just a rich guy who likes beating up poor people. Yes. Um, and what are you doing not giving this money to, like, soup kitchens? You know, he, he you always get the little gestures that he's doing charity, but that's never the point of the story, and often those charities are really uh, shell companies to embezzle money or, mm. you know, or to shift money toward laser satellites or something, <laughs> you know. And, and that whole that whole classist angle in a really, you know, Ayn Randian kind of way, you know, ticks me off. And maybe Batman is just this, this, you know, corrosive vigilante figure who by all rights should be admired by survivalists more than young uh, hipster people living in the cities, you know? And, and that's hard for me to, to shake. And so I love what you're saying because, I mean, that's a Batman who... I still love, some part of me still loves, I still want to get behind, you know? Yeah. I know what you mean, in modern day, I mean, it's funny, because, again, I, I did a, um, I recently did an episode on Rambo, and we were talking about sort of like 80s politics and Reagan 
era and, you know, Reagan declaring that Rambo, John Rambo is a Republican. And when I was looking at it, I was like, there's, there's, in this modern day, when you look at certain interpretations of Batman, whether it be The Dark Knight Returns or even The Killing Joke and other sort of, especially in the 90s and even some of the early 2000s, there's no escaping that, you know, yeah, Bruce Wayne's probably a Republican. You know, he, he's funneling money, he's, he's a one percenter and all that kind of thing. And then you read, there was there was a story, obviously, you know, Scott Snyder's story, Endgame, which he did, in which sort of like, you know, Batman lost his his sense memory, everything. he lost his ability to be Batman. And he went and he's like, his natural inclination was to turn that wealth and to go work in a in a children's shelter. You know, he, right. he lost the grief and he lost the pain. And so he did actually use that money then for good. And I, I, I sort of take that now that like, you know, yes, he is, he wants to do well, but psychologically, this is almost like the only way he sees that he can do it and handle his his ongoing trauma. Mm-hmm. It's a real difficult one. It's it's quite an interesting way to sort of interpret the character. Yeah, I've read that, and and I, and I and I do like the idea. I mean, I I do think it is fine to read a story about a one percenter who has a good heart, you know. And and obviously, they do exist, right? I mean, mm. um, yeah. I mean, I always come back to you know because I also wrote a book on Batman Begins. Um, I also I come back to the Nolan trilogy, and I feel like it's so set up in that first film that both Thomas and Bruce tried to help Gotham, but they did it in different ways. Mm. Thomas built a monorail system. He's doing public transit, right? He's doing charitable works. He's a doctor. He's a healer. He is the sort of philanthropic, liberal rich guy. And Bruce goes out and beats people up. (laughs) Bruce goes out and spends all his money and it's this like Iron Man, he never talks about social causes of crime, which is clearly Thomas's perspective. Bruce is just, you are accountable for your actions. And, you know, I might have compassion and let somebody off now and then, but I mean, I, crime, you know, is a plague and it's an individual failing, not a social problem. And in my first adventure, we're going to destroy the mass, the beautiful mass transit system that my dad built, and I'm never going to bother to rebuild it because that stuff doesn't matter. And and I think that these are two responses to not just crime, but also about you know a kind of individual responsibility. Do we solve social issues through uh, social programs, or you know, and and look at where people come from, or do we just say you know? Look, you guys are drug dealers. I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat you up, uh, or arrest you, and throw you in jail for decades. Bruce is obviously, you know, on that that second side that I don't really agree with. And even though I thrill to him as Batman and everything else, and I felt like that was so carefully set up in that first film that they really missed the opportunity uh, in the third film to have him realize that. You know, you have those charities going on and rises that Bruce hasn't even. You know, they've shut their doors and, you know, Bruce is like kicking orphans down the street and he doesn't even, he's not even aware of it. <laughs> um, you know, so, I mean, I think that kind of central dynamic from what I saw in Batman Begins has stuck with me about the character. And I always want, you know, obviously I, I like Batman, but I mm. want I want there to be that kind of responsibility of wealth and, and privilege. Uh, and I don't usually see it. I mean, Skyder shows it, Snyder shows it uh, somewhat, but... Well, it's quite so difficult. I, yeah, well, I wonder, it's one of those, you know, he's a character that was invented in, you know, the late 30s off the back of the Great Depression. And, you know, they were, they were looking just for 
at that point, really sort of like a crime noir hero. You know, that's all he was. And it was it was a novelty to have that sort of, the you know, the the rich playboy by day and the crime fighter by night was no different to Lamont Cranston and the shadow or the spider or, you know, these other things, the pulp heroes from earlier in the, in the decade. But like you say, almost 100 years on, you know, 80 years on sort of thing, does it still stand? I mean, could, could you... I mean, Iron Man is still one of Marvel's biggest draws, especially in the, in the cinematic universe, and he is the one percenter in that group. He's an industrialist. He... Literally an arms dealer at one point, that, you know, but he tries to turn things around. But even like say in the films, they've never addressed the fact that this is a, a mega, mega, mega rich person who flies around in an armored suit and doesn't actually do anything to look at great, you know, causes. Uh, well, not only that, but I mean, you know, he supposedly learns his lesson in the first movie. Iron Man Two starts off with him telling off Congress. I, you know, just saying I will not be accountable to the government. You know, this kind of power is better off in my hands in the private sector than with elected officials. Now, that is an anti-evolutionary statement. I mean, imagining that's the equivalent of Boeing or, you know, an arms manufacturer saying, we're not going to license this stuff to you. We're not going to let you know how this works. This is better off with a corporate CEO running it because you guys in government don't know what you're doing and can't be trusted. That is such a far-right statement. Probably that company would be broken up and and 90% of our respective countries' populations would be horrified by how extreme that statement is. And yet, and he's also the cause of Ultron, of every single problem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The adventures that he has had to deal with. Which have like killed lots of people and destroyed cities. All of it is down to him, um, and everybody is totally fine with him controlling this. And he was drunk, yeah. you know, flying it around drunk. <laughs> like he's a bad guy. Oh yeah, the the fact he's that by the sort guy. of by the end of Age of Ultron, the fact that he's not doing time in prison, I was a little <laughs> bit baffled by. But the same goes for sort of like you say, the modern interpretation of Batman, like the you know what you say about the films, the, the Batman in. Um, BVS, like the Batman versus Superman, you know, he's a mega rich guy. He's got no problem going around branding people, beating people. And I know it's meant to be a part of the story arc. But then at one point, he, he happily drives his almost indestructible Batmobile through a whole bunch of buildings down by a docking yard that may not have the insurance to cover the damage that he's creating with yeah. his indestructible tank. And it well, all feels a little bit. Destroying. He's always destroying buildings. Mm. And. You know, you can say, oh, yeah, there's insurance, but, you know, unoccupied buildings have people in them all the time. And even where somebody has to, you know, reconstruct a, it, it could be, you know, a small businessman, it could be a big company. People are going to be out of business if they can't work at those docks. There are consequences to these actions of using the city as your rich boy playground to blow stuff up in. And that stuff repulses me now. But I think... You know, when I was a kid, I just thought this was fun and cool. And it's okay because he's the hero in the same way that those movies position both Bruce and and Tony Stark as the hero. So whatever they do, even if they torture somebody, that's okay. If if you read a news report of somebody who was branding somebody, (laughs) you'd say, lock them up. This is what I get into about the killing joke, which I find, you know, really putting it back to this. What we've talked about here is this cycle and I do find that this book is almost a representation of the cyclical nature of the violence in the Batman comics in particular. 
that they can't seem to get away. No matter how, you know the Batman's desire to help the Joker in this, to make him you know to give him the opportunity to be better, is the olive branch that they keep throwing into these comics. Whether it be Scott Snyder or Ed Brubaker or even uh, Tom King now, whoever they'll they'll throw these little bits in. But then you get the third act again, where it ends up being punching and violence and all that sort of thing, and you just can't get away from that. And I almost feel that that's what the joke is. That's the killing joke, that there will never be an ultimate end to this. There's never going to be an actual killing. The joke is the the cycle of violence. Like We're on this you know, this hamster wheel, and it's going to keep going. That's, that's the joke to me, that no matter what you think is going to happen, it's always going to keep going. Well, that gets back to what you were saying earlier about how it could be both an embrace of and, and, and a commentary on or a pull away from the sort of violence of 80s superhero comics. And what you said about the third act is true. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's been a few counterexamples, but I don't know when I've ever hit the third act of a superhero movie and not just checked out and just said, you know, all right, I get it. They're fighting. Let's get to the resolution already. And, and I'm watching, I, I could be watching $80 million on screen and mm. I'm, I'm bored. But... That's me, and we are addicted not only to these movies, but to a kind of superhero structure that is about violence and is about a more badass villain who's dangerous. And because of that danger, it's very easy to see, oh, well, you know, the Avengers are the heroes here. And it's very hard to see, well, why didn't they at least alert the NYPD of an alien invasion? You know, Mm. those guys are trained. I trust them a lot more than I do a god from a parallel dimension. So, I mean, and and I think that I've come to see this kind of violent narrative as the fact that these are all of our blockbusters as related to the sort of shift we've been seeing in politics and some of these tough answers, you know, that people think, well, the only solution is to be tough and the reality of war is obscured from us because the reality of those buildings being smashed is obscured from us. Mm. Um, and we're able to see somebody as a hero. I'm a lot more interested in a different kind of story. I'd rather see Bruce Wayne working in a soup kitchen for two hours, I swear <laughs> to God. I'd rather, you know, see, um, you know, an entire movie condensed to the first act and have the second and third act be Tony Stark dealing with the PTSD in Iron Man 3 without the villains. The fact that even when you do good things and save people, you have probably killed people and seen terrible things that will haunt you, and that's okay, and you know what, it's also okay for men to cry and be vulnerable, you know, even when they're heroes, but good luck selling that as a billion dollar franchise. Mm. (laughs) The one one thing I'd say, though, the one thing that seems to have been a lesson for both the Marvel films and the backlash to Man of Steel and even... Batman v Superman, has been that consequences are becoming a part of the narrative. So as you say there, in, you know, in Iron Man 3, Tony Stark, at least for 10 minutes, is suffering from PTSD. Like, you know, he has a trauma from almost dying in space. There are consequences to those actions. It's not the James Bond effect where he just goes from mission to mission to mission, where, you know, you know he goes off and sleeps with women, kills all these people, and then goes on to the next mission. They seem to have consequences. And the same with, you know, um, you can see that there are issues from um, Winter Soldier that track into Age of Ultron, which track into Civil War, which track... I almost feel that, that, that 
some of the the top level Marvel films themselves are they are trying to almost now start to comment on the fact that actually yeah these aren't self contained adventures and you know what blowing the crap out of a place does have a consequence and I think Civil War actually to an extent had a good commentary on that and that's yeah. one of the reasons I felt a little bit abashed by the sort of like you know the the, the humor that then gets put into other films I'm like oh, you're, you're sort of underplaying this though. They're the film. They're the they're the stories I find more compelling when you've got to face up to the consequences of your actions. Yeah, I, I agree with exactly what you're saying. I think that's that's a fair counterpoint, and I and I think that if these movies, you know, I mean, if the superhero genre doesn't just disappear like the western or something, and and we keep doing this and making these movies and television shows, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Jessica Jones. You know, Jessica Jones is all about the trauma of assault. And boy, did they get that right. And, you know, there's no bad guy, you know, that's going to destroy the world. Really, the Purple Man is, you know, a uh, very limited threat compared to most of what you've seen. But she never goes down a hallway or opens a door where I'm not at the edge of my seat thinking, is she going to lose herself? Who's going to pop out? And, and I think that as time goes on, you know, I do hear, at least in the popular press, a lot of demand for something different. Mm. And even if there isn't necessarily a demand for, well, I mean, there might be a demand for showing these consequences, but just the fact that if we keep doing this and keep making more and more movies and more and more TV shows, somebody's going to get this right. And somebody's going to push further into these areas and give us that more humanistic moment that gets back to Batman trying to save the Joker and not just to, isn't it fun, traumatizing Gordon and, and celebrating violence. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's, it's a bit, it's, it's quite funny because I, 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 it's like the CW shows that exist at the moment. And, and you know, I, I, I dip in and out of them to be honest. I watched Arrow for a while, but all, the only thing with Arrow is now that, you know, everything's gone on, why would you live in that city? <laughs> and that's yeah. the thing I can never get past. I'm like, I get that this is a superhero soap opera, but I'm still curious as to why. Like, you know, I, I find the thing, and that's the problem I have with many of sort of the the comics as well. Like, I prefer the more self-contained ones. And um, you know, when you get to the big bombastic ones, like the Justice League, go from city destroying event to city destroying event. I'm just like, where do these people live, and what are their premiums on home insurance? Like, it must be through the roof. <laughs> And also, like, how does religion and and consequently politics change when you have a Norse god who's really a god hanging out? I mean, and how how does that change in response to city-destroying traumas? You know, you think about how much 9-11, not Mm. only, you know, I mean, you're talking about 3,000 people. It's really not that many people historically. It's a lot, but it's not losing tens of thousands or a war. But the country was completely traumatized. You know, we set up a, an entire third branch of government, the extrajudicial, unaccountable court system. We completely redid the structure of the American government and, and funded contractors. All of the stuff with Snowden and all was a consequence of that because we were handing out security clearances to everyone because we were so desperate to amp up the terrorism fight. Really a lot of things changed because of 3,000 deaths in a traumatic, shocking manner. Yeah. And that's, the world's going to change. 
Exactly. And this is the thing, I think, and, you know, I know they tried to make these, they're not in real world, but I, I don't, for all the ongoing, I get the comics and they're so proper, and I do enjoy them, and I can't deny that I read them, but there are certain ones that I like. I mean, I'm a really big fan of Moon Knight, and I think he's been handled well, and I think he's been handled badly, but the, when, when he's handled well is when they really get into, like, his, you know, his psychological trauma and that sort of thing, and it's not a massive earth-shattering thing. It's literally one guy dealing with an acknowledgement that, yeah, I'm, I am actually suffering from something and I'm trying to be a hero, but, or am I being a hero because I'm suffering from this mental illness, that sort of thing. It's it's those those questions that I find interesting. I, um, I agree with that. But the one thing I would say is you know, a, a commentary on... Everyone talks about Watchmen as a commentary on you know, the evolution of the superhero comic. I I... I don't disagree because I do love Watchmen. I think it's a great piece of work, and, and both artistically and technically. But actually, from a um, a standpoint of the impact of a superhero on the real world, I think Miracle Man, Alan Moore's Miracle Man, and Neil Gaiman's Miracle Man is actually a much better commentary and statement on that. I mean, have you read it? I'm assuming you have. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've written uh, seventy thousand words on it. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you are preaching to the choir. I definitely choose Miracle Man over over Watchmen. And, you know, so much of it goes back to issue 16 there of the world being restructured and radically reorganized. Mm. And I think that if you run any superhero or kind of sci-fi franchise forward, you know, you might be able to get one, two, three movies, you know. You might be able to get a few seasons, but... The world is going to radically change. Yeah. Uh, the technology the Fantastic Four have, I mean, they can cure cancer. Don't tell me they can't. Yeah. Like, now we live in a world where everybody's saying that, you know, AIDS is a conspiracy is reasonable. Uh, mm. You know, that's not wackadoo thinking if you live in a universe with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine how just knowing alien life exists would totally transform our concept of ourselves as a species, let alone gods on other planets and you know cities being destroyed i mean you run this clock forward enough and you're going to get miracle man you're going to get at least some radical change and so i agree a hundred percent with what you're saying i want to high five you i'm so glad because it's one of those books that i think has got you know uh, marvel reprinted it uh, quite a few years ago now and, and you know it was it got a little bit of its due but I still, I think it's, it, it gets lost in the the fold, really. I mean, I think it's so it, it should get elevated and it should get so much more attention than it is. But because the, you know the the inevitability of that conflict at the end is so earth shattering that it cha- it literally changes the world psyche to who Miracle Man is, and the the religion changes, science changes, so social structures change. Absolutely, yeah. and, um, and we need. I mean, those are things that. I think so many people focus on the more issues, and I and I love the more issues. Mm. Uh, but you know, Gaiman weaves stories about social change mm. that are moving and deep, and that I come back to and think about just in daily life. That I you know think I mean think about when we talk about like fragile masculinity mm. and you know men struggling with supporting their families in. A world where, you know, they want the uh, James Bond girl, they want the, you know, they're constantly being infused with these narratives that say, you know, you can't show emotion, you have to be this tremendous financial success. I mean, 
Donald Trump says it, you know, I must be a very stable genius because look at my, you know, yes. my money. Yeah. I think, I mean, that mentality really exists. How much worse would, would masculinity be if you had superheroes in a oh, world with yeah. Superman? I mean, Lex Luthor's psychology, especially in the last 20 years, that's been played up of like, I can no longer be the alpha man on the planet, no matter how smart I am, mm. because this alien is here. Yeah, most, you know, at least 50% of Western men are going to react in some way like that. And that's going to come out in whether there's a radical change in masculinity or, you know, there's a rise in abuse or, or you know, survivalists or something. I mean, that's going to come out in a lot of weird directions. Just the presence of the superhero transforms ourselves and our concepts of uh, masculinity and indeed femininity. I mean, we've seen that with, like, the Wonder Woman movie. Mm. That was just a movie. And there were so many girls who said, oh, my God, I left that theater thinking... I can do anything, and I was riding a high for two minutes. Is this how men feel after every action movie? <laughs> um, and even that was a movie, and that moved people and, and encouraged people. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I'm amazed by exactly what you're saying, and those are stories that I want to read. And it is kind of heartbreaking that I mean, I guess we're still waiting on Buckingham and Guyman to do the next couple storylines but it's kind of heartbreaking that i guess it took so long that by the time marvel did those editions they were a little too expensive and people had downloaded it on the internet and also if they had come out 10 years earlier i mean anything with that alan moore touched was yes. going to be a bestseller and 10 years later you know I, I mean he's definitely revered but you know it, it's a little more complicated nuanced picture but I say right now, right here, for anyone listening, seriously, go check out the complete Alan Moore and then the Neil Gaiman uh, Silver Age Miracle Man because they are outstanding, absolutely outstanding, and um, really, really worth checking out. I agree, and I, and I'll say this: just one last thought about that is I love Watchmen. I go back to Watchmen a lot, but Watchmen doesn't Watchmen doesn't make me cry. Mm. Watchmen makes me think about things, but it doesn't move me. Moore's Miracle Man and Guyman's Miracle Man moves me, and I can sit there crying sometimes over how beautiful and, and how painful underneath it is that our world is so different. The final act, yeah, the final book in that that series, uh, the, in Moore's three book uh, structure, is so moving. I mean. It's, there's a, I'm not, I'm, spoilers, just in case I've never said to go read it, but there's a moment where Miracle Man's, I want to say his alter ego, but his human persona, he literally acknowledges his own superfluousness. He's like, well, I don't actually contribute anything to this situation. So he, he gives up. He, he, he sort of, you know, in all intents and purposes, he, he, he commits suicide in order for Miracle Man to take over permanently. And it's really sad that he's like, yeah, that that other person is is a better is a, that's it's almost it's a sacrifice. He sacrifices himself after going through everything to to for for the betterment of the world without ever being acknowledged. And I think it's a real that moment always spoke to me in that book. So that moment speaks to me too. I mean, I I, I feel it as you're talking, and I, and I think that you know to some degree that is you know we were talking about how the world changes when you run that story forward long enough. 
when you run these stories forward long enough with any superhero who has an alter ego, you're going to reach some kind of crisis point like that, where obviously uh, Superman is going to live for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Clark Kent might be who he is to identify with people, and you can argue, you know, if that's the real person or not, but Clark Kent's not going to be able to hide the fact that he can't age in, you know, 2250. You know, and at some point, Superman's psychology is going to change. I mean, if you can fly into outer space and look at the world and see it as a, as a fragile blue ball anytime you want, boy, the, the daily petty stuff that Clark Kent does is... is I don't know. I mean, it might be what you what you really love about life, but I mean, you become Doctor Manhattan. What you end up becoming Doctor Manhattan. You 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 lose. Oh, you, yeah. could, you could potentially lose your humanity. That's you know that's it. That's the inevitable next step, isn't it? Right. Or 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 at least at, at some point you say this bifurcated personality served a function that I no longer need. Yeah. Um, I can just be Cal Al, and I can do the domestic stuff if I still care about it, if I love these human moments, if I, if I, you know, I mean, it depends how you see Superman's character, whether he goes the Dr. Manhattan route or not. But even if he doesn't, there comes a point at which you don't need uh, Clark Kent. I'm, I'm going to, we're going to start to wrap up there because that's been, that's been, considering we started with, uh, you know, talking <laughs> about the killing joke, we've gone some really interesting places. So well, I think it's, it's stuff that's in there in the killing joke. I mean, it is. We're, it is tensions in the Killing Joke that promote these conversations, which is why it's lasted thirty years, and hopefully, will you know, will go on to be an important book. I'm into that. So quickly, we're going to wrap up. Uh, please, please give Sequa, uh, Sequa a boost. Where can they find it? We're at uh, sequart.org. That's S E Q U A R T, like S E Quart. It showed for sequential art. S E Q U A R T dot org. Excellent. And I do recommend it. I've got, I've got your early Grant Morrison book, the uh, essays on Watchmen. Well, I've got a few, actually. I've got quite a few. They're brilliant. They're absolutely excellent. And uh, uh, highly recommend them. So uh, we shall wrap up on that one. Uh, that's been fantastic. But do you want to say... It's an honour to be here. No, it's, it's been fun. I'm really glad you did it. Well, there we go. The interview with Julian Darius. Fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Excellent conversation. Really insightful. I didn't realise I was going to be sort of expounding on the killing joke as much as that, but it was fantastic. I will be getting Julian back at some point to talk more comics and superhero things. But in the meantime, uh, if you want to get in contact with us in any way, please feel free to do so. Uh, I'm on at 20th Century Geek at Twitter, 20th Century Geek at gmail.com, and of course on Facebook, on Tumblr, and all those other things as well, Instagram, uh, all under 20th Century Geek. So please, reach out, say hello, give us some feedback, everything else. Now, two things, more important. Firstly, one of the platform, we are on Patreon, so please, if you want us to help, want to help keep the lights on, go ahead and make a donation. Uh, every penny counts, as they say. Now, final thing, I just want to reach out and say thank you very much to Fitz at Narrative Audio. Uh, he graciously edited and put this episode together, and I highly recommend that you seek them out. That's Narrative Audio on Twitter. Uh, when, uh, there is a link to their website on there, and all of his services uh, and everything is available on there. So, until next time, thank you very much, 
and I shall see you again soon.